to Fed by Ravens with Matt and Adam. Good morning, Matt. Good morning, Adam. It is a good day for a couple reasons. <laughs> you get the satisfaction if you've been reading along. We have hit day 25, which is the last reading for Genesis. You get to conquer Woo! your first book in the awesome. Old Testament. And it has been a whirlwind of a book. <laughs> and then uh, we're going to go to day 26 and start Job in the Old Testament today. Mm. Mm, that Old Testament, Matt. Tell me about it. So, what is going on? First, our Old Testament readings are Genesis 49 through chapter 50, and Job chapter 1 through chapter 3. So good. This so is good. one of Matt's, this is like Matt's favorite two days of reading the whole year. Uh, so I'm going to let Matt be a little enthusiastic. <laughs> He's a bit of a uh, nerd when it comes to stories and uh, character arc developments and major things like this. So yeah. go ahead, Matt. So, okay, so in chapter 49, Jacob is on his deathbed, and he blesses his sons, and they're... Where before it was like a traditional blessing, like this is what God told me, so I'm going to pass this on. Uh, now it's very specific, and it's um, he's applying it not just to the individual sons, but to the their children and the tribes that are going to come from the sons. So he's already blessed Joseph in the previous chapters. Yes. Right? Like he's passed but, the blessing that mm-hmm. his dad gave to him. Now, though, in, it's almost like an act of prophecy. In mm-hmm. fact... He does say, I'm telling you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Yes, it's a very prophetic language. He's cool. basically telling them what's going to happen when they end up in the promised land. So let's see what happens to the boys from the four women that Jacob uh, created these boys with. Yeah, so I, I really love this because it sets up like character arcs for the rest of the story. The so rest of this giant s- year. Yeah, so you see whatever Jacob says over his sons... Happen. This happens over the tribes throughout the rest of the Old Testament and into the New Testament. So what happens to Reuben? All right, Reuben should have gotten the blessing. Yeah, the Reuben's firstborn. firstborn, but he is outed. <laughs> He's called unstable as water, and the whole couch couch incident is brought up, which is when he tries to overthrow a, uh, Jacob and yeah, sleeps when, with... Uh, when Rachel dies and he, he sleeps with uh, her maidservant, Bilhah. Yeah, bad move. Bad move, so... Jacob's like, you're out. Just out. You're straight up out. You're too violent. And then he then clumps Simeon and Levi together because they were the ones who slaughtered a whole town using the sign of the Lord of circumcision. They totally slaughtered Shechem. So they're too violent. And uh, Abraham, I'm sorry, Jacob says, you're going to be divided and scattered among Israel. And uh, what should have gone to Reuben, like even the priesthood goes to Levi now. So they never get lands, but they'll be scattered uh, as right. part yeah, of so, the priest. Yeah, I yeah, know. Matt You're jumping ahead. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> well, Simeon and Levi, I thought we were doing. Yeah, 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 yeah. But you're like getting ahead in the story. Oh, I know. But the, but, people, um, the people love it. Yeah, so Simeon and Levi, uh, they are told you are not going to inherit any land in the promise. Boom, you're violent and you misuse the things of God. Right. So it will be interesting, though, the rest, the redemption story of yeah. Levi. All right. Uh, we're trying to move along because there's, there's so of stuff. much here. And, Matt- and then we get to the fourth son, Judah. And this is, we finally see uh, a, a real blessing yeah. and a real, like, hope promised over the tribe of Judah. And if you get a chance, you know, look back at chapter 49, verse 8 through 12. That mm-hmm. is the blessing on Judah. It's really beautiful. This is where 
He says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Like he is going to be the tribe of lawgiver and even riding on a donkey. There's like tribute, there's obedience, there's the, uh, the prince of peace. Like all these, yeah. all this imagery of Christ. And when he comes in riding on a donkey, I mean, it goes right back to Jacob before the time of um, the first exile, really, to Judah, or the, oh, not Judah, to Egypt, sorry. Okay. Anyway. Yeah, so this is like the first, like, well, not the first, but this is like a really solid prophecy about Jesus. Yes. Coming from the line of Judah. Uh, then we get um, Zebulon, and they're going to, they become seafaring people. Uh, Issachar is constantly, they, they work the fields and the land, but they are also constantly being attacked and enslaved by neighboring countries. Right. Uh, Dan is where Samson comes from. And, and judges. And uh, a good amount of the judges do come from this, but the most notable one is uh, Samson. And, Can I interrupt? Uh, yeah. Jacob stops here and he has this little line where he says, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. And basically, I see it as, as he's talking about his boys, he's like, oh, dear Lord, salvation is bound up in these boys. I'm going to have to wait for you to redeem and work, but I trust in you for your salvation to do this, Lord. Mm-hmm. Just has a little moment of praise, like we all do with our kids. We're yeah. like, oh, Lord, oh. have mercy. Okay. Yeah. And then he goes on to Gad. Then he goes on to Gad. Gad is like the northeast, northwestern most. Uh, I don't know tribe and they are like the first line of defense against uh invading neighboring tribes so they're they are constantly at war uh throughout the story asher very straightforward they just have they have delicacies <laughs> yeah they're blessed they have very uh, good fruit and then naphtali uh the another translation for naphtali is so the one that's in the bible mostly is is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns Another way to say it is, will produce beautiful sayings. Oh. And uh, Deborah, the judge Deborah, is from Naphtali, and yes. her prayer or song is is logged as one of the beautiful sayings of Naphtali. Very cool. Uh, and then we kind of get this another blessing on Joseph, and it's kind of clumping in Manasseh and Ephraim. Yes. And he kind of gets his father's special blessing, almost like the blessing of the firstborn, because mm-hmm. he is the firstborn of Rachel. And so you get this kind of beautiful blessing put upon Joseph and his families. And from this point on, when um, we reference Israel, sometimes they'll reference it as Ephraim. Nice. Because Ephraim is, was adopted by Jacob in the previous chapter, given the blessing of the firstborn and from then on, whenever you see like, oh, the Ephraim is going to be blessed, and from Ephraim we'll call them all these things, it's talking about Israel as a whole. And, and um, honestly, in chapter, in verse 25 and 26, he says blessing like six times. Mm-hmm. Like it's just overflowing blessings on the head of Joseph. Yeah, he loves Joseph. <laughs> and then get he gets it. a sweet little Benjamin. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In yeah. the morning, devouring the prey, and at the evening, divi- dividing the spoil. And two prominent figures come from Benjamin. One, the first one we get to see and know is King Saul. Oh, wow. And the second one is the Apostle Paul. Who was formerly called Saul. So, yeah. But so, then uh, transformed. It is interesting. And think of, like, when we get into these characters later, 
refer back to these blessings because it kind of gives you a framework for the character and the family they're coming from. So when we see Saul and we see Paul and you think of a ravenous wolf, things start to make sense about their character. Tenacious D. Mm -hmm. Whoa, okay. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's tenacious defense, the tribe of Benjamin, because he's the youngest. Young Benji. We got to keep moving because we still got to get to Job, but uh, bring us through to Jacob's death and burial. What What is the deal with that? Yeah, so Jacob... Again, made Joseph promise that he would bury him in the land. Yeah. So Jacob is actually embalmed uh, through Egyptian ceremony. And then they weep for him. All of Egypt weeps for him for 70 days, which is two days longer than they would, or two days shorter than they would weep for the Pharaoh. Yeah. So Jacob was highly honored within Egypt. Right. Then there's this giant processional to the land, and they take a route that's very similar to the route that... Israel will take when they're fleeing Egypt and entering into the promised land. Interesting. All because he says, you got to bury me at the cave of Machpelah. You got to bury me in the promised land. Gather me to my people Mm -hmm. in this one little small piece of land in the promise. It's a great theme. It's consistent. And even now I was thinking that's the, that's the promise of Jesus is that we have a promised land. Mm -hmm. And now the promised land is the whole earth. He's going to remake it. Yeah. Bury me in that. Bury me in the promise. In the promises. All right. Uh, Then again, Joseph's brothers, once dad's (laughs) dead, they're like, oh, no. Now Joseph's going to drop the hammer. You did. I did have a moment where I'm like, I can't remember if they reverted back to their old ways or not. And you start to think that because they're starting to scheme and go, let's just say the dad said something. But then there's a moment of like, kind of it seems like real brokenness but it's led by joseph mm-hmm. he says you meant it for evil but god meant it for good and once they realize they're forgiven it's kind of like they're settling into this grace like we really are forgiven wow and which is our whole life as christians yeah. like settling into you really are forgiven which and is hard even, to believe yes it's it's the hardest thing to, it's it's the miracle of faith mm-hmm. um, that you can believe that you're forgiven because they're tempted to revert back to let's lie to Joseph and make sure we're let's safe. Let's steal what we can. But Joseph is so blessed. He's like, look, I understand where all this comes from. Mm-hmm. And then at the very end of 50, we finally end Genesis with the death of Joseph. Right. And he again asks his brothers or their, the tribes to yeah. bring them out. Cause he, but he says, wait. He says, wait for when God brings you out. God will bring you out of this place. Uh, In verse 25, he says, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. And again, it's this cool, like prophetic. He's now offering in the line of Jacob, the the prophecy of God will come and save you one day and you will bring me out of Egypt into the promised land. It's easy to miss and it's going to be easy to miss in Exodus when they actually have a little verse that says, and they took Joseph's bones. And you're yeah. like, huh? What does that have to do with anything? Well, right. it's a big deal. It's the promise it's being the fulfilled. Fu- yeah, it's the fulfillment of that and it's going to save them. It's the fulfillment of a prophecy yeah. that has been going on now. And he's 110 years old when he dies, but he makes them swear like his dad made him swear to mm-hmm. him. And he, I do love that. He's 110. So they got about 300 more years to become a, a bigger nation. Yeah. That's amazing. So he's, uh, all right, That's, thus concludes Genesis. Woo, we what did it. Amazing book. It's a book of beginnings. It's setting the whole trajectory. And don't forget the themes. The theme of there's a seed of enmity, mm-hmm. which is murderous intent, and there's a seed 
of the woman, which is hope to restore mankind to God and to the garden. Yes. And that's what we're looking for. And God has chosen Abraham's family, and we're seeing that play out. Uh, and it works out through our, despite our disobedience, God is all powerful and all loving and setting up his people to one day claim the promised land. Genesis. So now we got to read the rest of the story. All right. Now we move on surprisingly to Job. What a surprise it was the first time we did this reading, but now we know because it's sticking to chronological kind of order. So Mm -hmm. Job is considered one of the older books. Right. So it's hard to place Job exactly, but it's somewhere during the time of Abraham, somewhere between Abraham and before Moses. And so it's during, they call it during the patriarchal period. And he seems to be on the east side of Canaan, mm-hmm. uh, in the land of Uz. It's kind of hard to right. locate, but they think it's kind of close to where uh, Esau okay. uh, was, where he's, his nation kind of became. Edom dwelled? Yep. Cool. There's so much to say about Job because it is considered a book of poetry. Mm. Uh, one thing you should understand is the Proverbs... And uh, Psalms, Job, they're considered poetry. And for the ancient Hebrew minds, poetry was a way of uh, passing down oral tradition. So mm-hmm. they crafted stories or crafted wisdom in a way that you would remember. Not like, it is like Dr. Seuss, like almost like a, we use rhymes. Yeah, they didn't use rhymes. They don't use rhymes. They use uh, like the, the way things are structured. Yeah. So parallel kind of thoughts like mm-hmm. death and life. Like if you have life, you will mm-hmm. have this. You know, it's like there's just little proverbial statements and they structured their stories that way. And Job, um, we regard because it's it's brought up again by um, in the New Testament, even by James and yeah. other authors reference Job as a real thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way it's told is much very much like a um, a poetry a poem or it's like a an story. epic epic yeah. poem yeah is like a way to think about it it's almost shakespeare yeah and the first couple chapters is the setup so it's a prose narrative and then whenever they're talking they're talking in like a poetic manner right it's a poetic setup so let's get into it cuz uh, let's do it let's try and do this is a lot but it's so great um You have, right from the beginning, you have the description of Job, who's wealthy, he's blessed, he's got 10 kids. He not only uh, has kids and his his land is fertile and he has all these sheep and everything, but he, like, loves them. And the line that always gets me is that he woke up early in the morning, offered offerings according to the number of his kids, and he prayed that it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. So he's saying, God, forgive them for their... Mm -hmm their sins, which I love because every father ought to be a priest for his own children. Yeah. And, uh, and that had a big impact on me last year when I read that. And I even started just doing that, like, God, protect my kids that they would never curse you, that they'd mm-hmm. always love you and forgive them for their sins. Um, and so this is the kind of guy he is. And it highly irritates the Satan. Yeah. So <laughs> re- real quick, I do want to point out that yeah. The, the lifestyle that Job has is a rhythm of repentance. Yes. He has this rhythm. He, he recognizes he's not perfect, that his kids aren't perfect, and that we can sin even unknowingly. And so he has this rhythm, this built-in daily repentance, which 
I love, which is something I've been trying to do in my own life. And he's celebrating, like he's having feasts with his kids. He's yeah. Sabbathing. You know, it's like he's really enjoying everything and understanding that God has blessed him. Yes. So then we get, we jump from Job to the heavenly courts. Yeah, this is so great. The sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. So like, it's almost like uh, I used to watch Chips, California Highway Patrol. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a morning meeting for the police officers, you know? So that's the idea that came into my old head is that the angels, the sons of God, all gather for uh, every so often for some kind of conference before the Lord. Who knows? I mean, yeah. And Satan walks in as if he knows his way around. He knows where the meeting is, and and it's, it's okay. You know, <laughs> they're looking at him like, oh, and God says, Satan, what are you doing here? Right. Like, what are you doing? Where have you been? Uh, for where have you come? And basically he's saying, what is your mission here? Yeah, and Satan uh, has one. He's basically like, Ugh, I'm bored. Right. I'm walking up and down the earth and there's nothing going on. And, but the, the idea for me is that I've never really connected. I've heard Satan's like a fallen angel. And I'm always like, where in the Bible does it say that? And this certainly is an area where it shows the familiarity with the angels that Satan mm-hmm. has. Like he used to be one of them. So therefore, he's just joining this meeting because he used to be part of them. Yeah. And he's left, and he's come back, and, and he's like, and God's like, "What are you up to?" And um, and Satan doesn't really have any ideas, Mm-mm. but God knows Satan is here for one reason: mm-hmm. to accuse. But see, Satan is accusing God of being right. no good. That's the thing that we miss. We think like, "Why did God allow that?" I used to do that too, but now I'm getting it. Satan is there to go, God. Your intentions for people are a lie. Right. You don't really love them. And they don't really love you. You're not worth loving. Yeah. You're just, a, you're just selfish and withholding. And so God, knowing this, says, have you considered my servant Job? Uh-huh. <laughs> and Satan's like, uh, I love what Satan says. He's like, well, you know, Job would turn on you in uh-huh. a heartbeat because, and this is kind of telling, he goes, um, you've put a hedge around him in his house and all that he does. You've blessed the work of his hands, the possessions you've increased in the land. So like Satan is almost giving glory to God and telling us what God actually does. It made me yeah. think this morning, like I'm when I pray for blessing and protection and a hedge, like that's real. Right. Even Satan knows that. He's right. like, well, of course he loves you because you give him good stuff. Right. Because he's like- if, You have to buy his love. Right. If Job really was left on his own, he would curse you. Mm-hmm. And God says- all right, do it. <laughs> but here's the, and I love how God is so over control Satan. He's like, here's the rules by which you can do this horrible thing that you want to do. Right. You can't kill him or mm-hmm. touch him. Mm-hmm. Just all of his stuff and see what happens. Right. Oh, so a thing that hit me when I was yeah. reading this is the whole context of Job is his friends and him are arguing about Like, what did you do to deserve this? Right. And the thing that's hitting me is recognizing we are all sinners. None of us deserve anything good from God. So God is in no way being evil or harmful by letting off his blessing or any good things he's giving to Job. Because Job, no matter how good of a guy he is, is sinful. And so he doesn't deserve anything good from God anyways. But that's the whole question. God is not manipulated. Yeah. And God is not manipulating us right. by just giving us good things it's so just we like, get his worship. I like you, so I'm going to yeah. give you good things. So 
it just kind of hit me because I'm always like trying to figure out like, wait, so what's going on? What 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 did Job do? Yeah. But Job, he's just like us. We don't deserve anything good. So if God doesn't give us something good, it's okay. Like it's right. like we're in a broken world. We kind of deserved it anyways. Right. <laughs> well, yeah. So the worst possible things happen: attack, fire, raids, some kind of hurricane, wind, things. Everything's gone. So like all ten of it. It starts like, off with the livestock. Yeah, all his property and his children just get annihilated. Decimated through about four series of events. And boom, in one day, everything Job has is gone. Job's response is in verse 20. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. He he realistically tears his robe, shaves his head, fell on the ground, and worshiped. I know. So Job understands it's okay to grieve. It's okay to mourn. This is the worst possible thing that's ever happened to me in my life. But I'm going to worship God. And in his worship, all worship is built on confession of God and confession of our sin. He recognizes, naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I know. He blesses God. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So, so good. So Satan is frustrated. And then, I did, I've forgotten all about this, but it says, like, at a, again, at a certain time, the uh, sons of God were gathering. They're presenting themselves before God, having some kind of meeting yeah. to get ready for the big day or season or who knows. Yeah. And Satan comes along and says, oh, from where have you come? Yeah. And then Satan answers and says, well, I've been going up and down the earth. I've been prowling like a lion, you know, basically. And he goes, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on earth. You know, and I love he's blameless. And God is saying, look, Job is one righteous person. Right. And I love for the sake of one righteous person. That is like the theme for me this year. But um, he says, yeah, he's still held fast and, uh, you know, didn't didn't curse me. And right. Satan says, yeah, skin for skin. Mm-hmm. He's like, you know what? I wasn't able to touch his body. If I can get this guy sick, he will curse you. And God says, all right. All right, but just don't kill him. Just don't kill him. So Satan wastes no time, goes out, and he basically afflicts Job from toe to head. Yeah. From snout to tail. Yeah. Every inch of his body and... Uh, and this is, you know, it doesn't take long. His wife is like, Job, we've lost everything, man. And now you are afflicted. And she just comes out and says, curse God and die. <laughs> right. So now we see his wife saying the words of Satan, being the accuser to him. Right. Which yeah. happens during suffering and sickness. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes things are coordinated and... Now the wife sounds like what Satan's doing because she's fallen into it. Mm-hmm. But Job's like, he just says no. Yeah, he says, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And he's just like, look, we've received good things from God. Now we're in a season of not, and that's okay. And this is where, uh, so it kind of sets up, okay, he's going to have some marriage problems now. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he's going to have his three friends traveling from afar, Um and there's in- interesting information about them, but maybe we can cover that as we go into there. But it's just introducing yeah, yeah, their we friends. Yeah, we that later. They traveled for sympathy and comfort. And I will say they started off really well. They sat seven days quietly yeah, they, with him. They when they mourned. see him, they like tear their clothes, they mourn, and they sit there and comfort him for a week yeah. without saying anything. And that's I, I never caught that before. No. 
And I realized, like, you know what? That that takes a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So they started off good, and we'll leave it at that. But that's the introduction. And then we're introduced in chapter three that Job does start to curse because when you're sick, you know, when you get sick, everything seems way worse. Everything yeah. is hard. You don't know what your meaning is in life. You're wondering, people probably don't even miss me at work. Like, all this horrible stuff yeah. goes through your mind. But Job deals with it by saying, cursed, he cursed himself. He curses himself. He curses the day he was born in a very poetic fashion, um, basically saying it would have been better if I was never born. Right. Um, also, I do, I personally want to make a note of, yep. he, he references the Leviathan. Yeah. Which... Um, so a lot of times this is taken literally like, oh, some great beast, but within ancient, uh, culture and yeah. mythology, the, there was a Leviathan, they called it Rahab Oh, and it was like the world serpent. It came from the chaotic sea and would destroy things. Okay. And so it's kind of like an agent of destruction. Okay. Helpful. I think... Uh, early in my Christian life, it was used as a proof for dinosaurs. Right. Uh, this is uh, an ancient mythological serpent that destroys the world. So find your proof for dinosaurs somewhere else. Right. All right. I did like the his, the last part of this section. He says, For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. So he's in the midst of face-to-face with death. Mm-hmm. Suffering is not always deserved. It's just not. And so... Well, I would say suffering is actually always deserved. Oh, I see what you did there. You're right. It's always deserved. So what we look for... What We were talking the other day, and it was... Instead of going, why is there evil in the world? The real question is... Why is there any good? Why is there any good in a world that is allegedly, like chaotic mm-hmm. and pointless and you're lucky and just yeah. evolving from a speck of dirt, then the question is, well, it's a miracle there's any good right. because there is no good or evil. It all just is. So that's a miracle. So that's what's hitting me as I read Job this time around. It's there. And even the friends, they're arguing like, well, what'd you do wrong? Like, like, right. Like blessing and curses are deserved. And there is some truth to that, but we haven't gotten there yet. But I'm just saying like, yeah. as you read this, yeah. recognize we don't deserve any good thing from God. Right. We only deserve evil. You came in naked, naked you'll return. Right. So, so this is Job, so buckle up. It's going to be fun. It's a, it's a long read. <laughs> I'm glad we do it early. You know? Yeah, it's like 50 chapters. It's as long as Genesis. Wow. Yeah. Moving on. Let's go to the sweet book of Matthew. We are getting right in the middle of it now. New Testament. Oh, Play yes. us in. New Testament reading is Matthew chapter 17, verse 14 through chapter 18. All right, so Jesus just had his whole transfiguration on the mountain. So we have this great mountaintop experience. And in chapter 14, he and his inner circle are coming down from the mountain to meet up with the rest of his disciples. And what do they find? They find... Uh, a man who's kneeling before them saying, Lord, have mercy on my son. He's an epileptic. He suffers terribly. He falls into the fire and off into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. Mm. Yeah, we're starting to run into. Uh, and then Jesus is so disappointed with his disciples. He's like, faithless. 
You're so faithless. Bring him here. And then he heals him. Right. <laughs> heals him instantly. And then they said, why couldn't we do it? And he says, because your little faith. If you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. That's a, a huge moment. I mean, we're, mm-hmm. we're kicking off, or I think we're finishing some ideas about Jesus as the best, as the real prophet. And yeah. he is going to give, he's giving his power to these guys. Right. He's saying, I'm passing on my authority, which is not a new idea. This is what Abraham mm-hmm. did to Isaac, Isaac to Jacob, now Jesus to his disciples, his apostles. I want to give you this authority over spirit world, over physical world, in the name of God for the healing and life of his people. Now, they have cast demons out before this. And it is comforting to see them run across the situation where they're like, "Uh, we've done this before, but it's not working right now, which is something we experience throughout our lifetime. So it's good to see the the apostles with Jesus experiencing this. Um, Also, I want to point out that the mountain he's referring to is the mountain he just transfigured on. And so he's saying you can the events that happened on this mountain, if you just have the faith, you can toss those events aside, and you'll see even greater things. That's amazing. Right. You'll see the Son of God in all his glory and listen to him. Yeah. And now you speak with his authority. Can you believe it? Can you believe that? I think the disciples, like all of us, are still hung up on the signs. Right. Like, I couldn't... I couldn't do the sign. Mm-hmm. I couldn't heal that boy. What am I doing wrong? It's like, mm-hmm. you're not doing anything wrong. You just, you need to believe this is what you're called to, and it is funded by the Son of God, right. my son. Listen to him. And then we get Jesus. He is uh, reiterating. He's, yeah. he's selling it again. He's telling them again. Because uh, the first time, Peter kind of got in his face about it, but he's telling them, hey, I am going to die and resurrect. Right. But this time, there's no argument. There's no. There's just they were distressed. Yeah, the prophet, the prophet is saying the words of God, saying, "I'm going to die, but I'll raise again on the third day." And it's freaking them out. And they're like, "We have no idea what you're saying now, and you just told us to believe and have faith, and then you just gave us something even weirder and harder to believe." Yeah, you're gonna die, but then you're gonna come back to I don't know. Oh, ye of little faith. Right. So then, moving on. Um, the collectors of taxes. So yeah, Jesus goes back to the hometown, home base, Capernaum, and there's the two drachma tax, which is the temple tax. <laughs> and I used, I didn't get this, uh, what Jesus says earlier, or I didn't get this before when last time I read it. But he says, uh, "What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings on of the earth take toll?" or tax from their sons or from others. Right. And so the great thing is Jesus is saying, hey, I'm God's son, so the temple tax does not belong to me. Like, you don't, don't tax me. I don't have to pay me. it. Yeah. yeah. But, he says, but for the sake of everyone else, mm. we're going to pay it. Right. And even Peter says, yeah, it's others, the kids of the king don't have to pay. Yeah. But... Let's do it. And then Jesus does something that I think is amazing. It's just showing, again, his authority over the earth. Yeah. He says, go uh, catch a fish, and inside the fish's mouth will be the shekel. Yeah. And basically, it's so silly. It's like, all right, we can find money. Money is not the Christian's worry. Right. Go open it up. Take and give it to them. Go do the thing that you've always done, yeah. Peter. Go fish, and you you can make money. Don't I will worry. say, the closest I've ever come to that was I lost fishing in the back pond, 
and I lost my hook and the little fake worm. Uh-huh. A fish, it just broke the line. Right. Well, then like 20 minutes later, I caught a fish. And the fish that I caught, I took out the hook. And then I'm like, wait, why is my hook? I thought I just took the hook out. It had swallowed. It was the fish. Oh, and man. so I found That's the hook great. and recovered the, the fake bait from a fish. So uh, I did reference this in my mind. I was like, it's just like the shuckle. <laughs> anyway. And then it would lead me to my great, the next question in chapter 18 is like, hey, God, who's the, Jesus, who's the greatest? This apparently was a conversation among the disciples. Sensing that he was a man of power, they wanted to be at his right hand. Right? Yeah, so there is like the easy dismissal of like, ah, oh, these guys, they just don't get it. But there's also a sense of a need for order and organization. Right. And so in their terms, they're still thinking very earthly and thinking, oh, okay, the Messiah's going to come. He's going to set up a reign and a rule. So we need to structure this thing out. So we need to figure out uh, a chain of command here. Right. And so I am seeing it like almost as there is like a, an even practical question they're trying to work out among themselves. Yeah, it's not as crass as we yeah. okay. Right. But it does set this whole section, chapter 18. I would say the theme, maybe tell me if you agree with me. The theme is humility, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Like, this is for all of chapter eighteen. This eighteen is humility because it is beginning to engage how we interact with one another in this under the kingdom of God. Right. So it is already. It starts off differently. Like some of you are not going to be in positions of leadership so that you can lord it over each other. But when you're following Jesus, you're in positions of leadership that you might serve one another. Mm-hmm. And so that's why he says the greatest in the kingdom of God is a child who recognizes. They have need of everything. Yeah, their dependence. And then he says, you better receive these children. Don't mess. So he refers to believers as children. Mm -hmm. So I like that. Yeah. That we are God's children. We look to him. We're poor and needy and we need love. We need everything. And so um, he says, you don't lead one of these children astray. You'll pay for that. If If you use these kids or you hurt them, you know, and it does make me think the reality of, People messing with Christians, it, it's not going to be forgotten. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> you persecute them, uh, don't think that it's, it's going to be forgotten. Moving on, though, he says, Yeah, so he's building. Don't a- sin. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, so, like, yeah, so he's building off of the previous comment of, like, don't lead these, don't tempt right. these kids, um, but also know that there's temptations everywhere throughout life right. and it's overwhelming and don't don't sin but the good news for us is that because this is where we get the if your hand causes you to sin chop it off but he does it in the the sermon on the mount i forgot that it's listed again here he yeah. says like if your eye causes you to sin cut it out right and so it's pretty intense but he's like showing the how devastating sin is to yeah. us but then the good news is that his hands and his feet were ruined. Yeah. So it, ours do not have that's to That's the gospel. His eyes were plucked out, you know, and, yeah. and he was hurt. But it's like you need to do this because it's sin is serious. Mm-hmm. And because sin separates you from God, so he goes in the parable of the lost sheep. And he says if he has 100 sheep and one goes astray, he goes looking for it. He leaves all the sheep to look for the one. Right. Because that's how important... Um, we are to God. That's yeah. how important we should be to each other. And he's also answering the question of who is the greatest. Nice. And he's saying, the look, you, you all are right. very important to me. Like, none of you are greater. 
But when someone's sick, other. when someone's hurting, when someone's even falling into right. sin, they become the greatest. Right. We're, because, man, we need to restore their faith. Uh-huh. So we have the lost sheep, and then that goes into uh, disagreements or sin against one another. Right. If your brother sins against you, and typically this has been used whenever there's problems in the church, we go to Matthew 18. Mm-hmm. But the context is so much different. It's so important to have the context. Right. Because... We've just gone through who's the greatest, the temptations to sin, the lost sheep. And now you go to, if a brother sins against you, go to him. Mm -hmm. Don't hold on to it. Don't talk trash and try to make it right. Listen to him. Bring a a witness. So like basically though, if like Matt steals something from me, I need to bring a couple of my buddies. I bring Chris and Anthony and we go, Matt, return this thing to Adam. And our whole point though is not just justice, but it's to say, hey, bro, why are you stealing? Right. Like, we want to restore you. And then if he's like, no, I didn't steal it. I'm not giving it back. Then we bring it before the church. And the church says, hey, Matt, we love you, man. That's mm-hmm. not how we act. And then if Matt's like, I don't care. Sorry to make you the bad guy. No, you're fine. Um, it says we treat Matt as a Gentile. Right. So now we're treating Matt as someone who is not saved. And But that means we're just praying for his salvation. We're like, mm-hmm. hey, come to church, Matt. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is kind of funny. So that means we've forgiven him. Um, but then there's this crazy saying, truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Mm-hmm. So it's giving, it means at least I, the way I read it this morning was the church has a real power on earth. Like it has value in heaven, what we're doing on earth. Mm-hmm. And then another verse that was taken out of context my whole life is where, uh, where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Mm-hmm. I've always used that, like, get people to pray for me to get a license or to get a good test grade. God's here. But he's saying, look, when the church gathers around the word of God, I'm there. And if the church binds up or looses someone, forgives their sins, or says, hey, man, your sins aren't forgiven until mm-hmm. you repent, that's real. That's God real. is there. Yeah. So if the church does say, you're out until you can um, repent. Be, repent that's real, man. Mm-hmm. And that's scary. Mm-hmm. I've always dismissed that as like, well, the pastors are jerks or, and they might be jerks, but there's real authority being transferred to the disciples. Yeah. And like in this, that, it's the church. Like he did it to the apostles, right. but in this one, he's saying the church has this power. And that's, what's crazy. Like, right. oh, you have little faith. You think you're looking at all these other things, mm-hmm. but he's like, I'm actually giving my power to the church to forgive or not forgive. And regardless yeah. of what people believe, doesn't matter. We're doing it, We're and doing so um, that was an eye opener to me. But and then he, but the whole idea is humility, right? We're doing yeah. this out of love. It's so, not so he for power. He backs this. He, I, it's brilliant. The order of this chapter is brilliant. Yeah. And so you have this. Definitely. The church has the power to forgive and not forgive, but then he does say. He backs up with this parable of the unforgiving servant. I know. And the point to me of this parable is, look, you have the power to do this, but remember, you've been forgiven so much. Right. And so you're going to... to forgive. You're going to loose. You're going to... Um, or bind up. I don't know. No, it's going to be loose. You're going to be loosing heaven to people yeah. more than keeping it from them. Right. Because Peter says, well, how many times do I have to forgive? Right. Like, when do I stop searching for this lost sheep who's just a jerk? Right. And Jesus' answer is 70 times seven. Never. You never. Because everything you have, Peter, is a gift. Mm-hmm. So it's the unmerciful servant um, parable. We've been... This has been a great day. We're, we're at our time limit. But uh, it all works together. So like even the power that we're given is supposed to be wielded 
under the umbrella of humility right. and understanding we have been forgiven. We received so much mercy that now we have no choice but to be merciful and announce the king will forgive you. Mm-hmm. And so I will forgive you. Right. You owe me. I'm forgiving you what you owe me. And I'm inviting you into the kingdom of God. That's it's Anyway, beautiful chapter, chapter 18 of Matthew. That's the New Testament for today. And then... Our Psalms, we're going over Psalms chapter 15 and 16. How about you do 15? Okay. And uh, I'll do 16 real quick. So 15 opens up with a question. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent and who shall dwell on your holy hill? And I love it because in a very poetic way, David recaps the the Ten Commandments right. in the rest of this chapter. Yeah. And the the interesting thing that stood out to me was he uses the singular he. Hmm. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Uh, he, he who does these things shall never be moved. Right. And the idea is, for me, like I'm realizing the Ten Commandments, we cannot keep them. So he's speaking... Of Jesus in this. Yeah. And the Ten Commandments are there to help us realize where we've actually sinned. sinned. Right. Because otherwise we don't think we have sinned. Right. And, and we it don't is all des- about Jesus. And we don't and we do not deserve to dwell on his hill or sojourn in his tent. And the idea though is there is someone who came for us who did who walked blamelessly and did what was right. And this person will never abandon my soul, which is Psalm 16. Beautiful psalm. Read the whole thing. Um, But in verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Yeah. So he won't let his Holy One, Jesus, see corruption. And then we become holy. That means... We will live forever. Yeah, so it's really cool to see David in the Psalms and at this point in the story recognizing that there's a life after death and there's physical life one day will be restored. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Boom. You've just been fed by ravens. Hope you've had as much fun as we have. Uh, Go in peace and serve the Lord.